1: Hi, I'm John McEnroe. I'm Bjorn Borg. This is Martina Navratilova.
0: I'm Mats Wilander. I'm Stan
2: Winka. I'm
0: Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy
1: Murray. And you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph. We come to you just 24 hours or less, in fact, since the Cincinnati tournament concluded. We are just a week away from the start of the year's final Grand Slam Tennis Tournament. Catherine Whitaker is here. I'm here, David Law. We are here to talk about tennis, and we are here, first of all, Catherine Whitaker, to talk about Angelique Kerber falling one match short of world number one. Ouch.
2: Yeah, it's Got to hurt, hasn't it? It's been a tough couple of weeks for Angelique Kerber. I reckon that Olympic loss hurt, and uh, I think this one probably hurt as much. I mean, the fact is, with the rankings, the fact remains she's incredibly close to Serena Williams and will have future chances to catch her up. I think we're going to dis- discuss how that could possibly happen. The U.S. Open. How desperately Serena Williams will want that not to happen because she is on the brink, I believe. Of well, if she were to win the U.S. Open, she would she would break one of Steffi's records, but she could potentially break another of Steffi's records. Is that right?
1: Uh, yeah, that's right. Because if she were to uh, get through the U.S. Open, Serena Williams, and still be number one in the world, so if she if she accumulated enough points, she would go ahead of Steffi Graf in terms of consecutive weeks at world number one. Serena Williams has amassed 184 weeks at number one in a row. She's just behind Steffi on 186. So in three weeks' time, three three Mondays' worth, basically, that would take her through the end of the, the US Open. So if she could do that... Yeah, she'd be the most. uh, The player has accumulated the most consecutive weeks at number one ever, um, which would be a nice little landmark to go with all the others. She's third currently, Serena Williams, in terms of weeks total at world number one. But this was Angelique Kerber's opportunity, certainly first opportunity, to overhaul her because. She only needed to win that final against Karolina Pliskova and she would have gone ahead of Serena Williams who wasn't playing the tournament because of a shoulder injury since our last podcast. She decided not to play, so there are big question marks over Serena. There is also, Catherine, A I think there's a 650-point differential in terms of what they will lose at the US Open because you may remember Serena Williams reached the semis last year, had that heartbreaker against Roberto Vinci, but Kerber lost one of the matches of the year against. Victoria Azarenka in round three so she's only losing about 130 points so that there, there are going to be great opportunities for Kerber to try to get number one again at the US Open but if Serena wins it all it'll still mo- end up being Serena Williams who's world number one.
2: And if it comes to the point where Kerber's in a position to have a match for the number one spot again you wonder how she will cope with it I mean Carolina Plushkiva We'll come on to her. What an incredible week. And it's something we've been waiting for. I know it's something that uh, Martina Novatilova, who's been a big proponent of, of her talent for a long time, has been waiting for as well. And she did fantastically. But it's hard not to see that as, as a huge opportunity missed for Angelique Kerber. And I, I, I really wasn't too worried about whether or not she'd do it. I really thought she'd do it yesterday. I thought she'd had her wobbles throughout the week, you know, really wobbled against Cara Suarez, Navarro it wasn't great against Stritz of her, but I thought, you know, she was pretty good against Halep in the semifinals, and I thought, okay, she's steadied herself now. She's She's up for this. She's going to do it. And then what happened yesterday was was slightly confusing and and maybe it is getting to her mentally. Just aside from whether or not she specifically does it, I think it's great for women's tennis that that is a very, very genuine, real rivalry now. To have Serena Williams at the top but also involved in a proper rivalry is fantastic for women's tennis, I think.
1: It it is. I I still think we, personally, I, I would need some convincing that this this counts as a rivalry at that level yet, simply because Kerber has only got one big win against her. It was a great win, but it was at the Australian Open. She pushed her, yes, she did push her in the Wimbledon final, but she lost it, and they've basically missed each other ever since then. So I think you'd need to have more matches between the two, and you'd need Kerber to actually win a few more of them for for my money to be really calling it a rivalry because Serena just has missed a, a lot of tennis of late don't don't forget how much she she missed at the end of last year she didn't play after the US open at all that's not Kerber's we we called
2: federer and nadal rivalry despite the fact that federer didn't get a win over, <laughs> over nadal for quite some time
1: yeah but but come on so roger federer was 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 winning everything else and he was winning three grand slams a year but his his head to head against nadal was against him so th- there's a there's a different level of of credibility to that
2: yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm just uh, in terms of, yeah, I, I, I don't, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm playing devil's advocate, really, but...
1: Well, stop playing devil's advocate. Just agree that I'm right. <laughs> okay. Okay. Done. Right, so I'm move right. on. Excellent. I'm right. Um, so, uh, yes, I mean, I would say, having watched the match yesterday, for me, Angelique Kerber, as m- I don't think it really was about the moment of, of world number one getting to her. I really didn't think that yesterday. I thought that it was fatigue had finally caught up with her. And it was also the brilliant play of Karolina Plishkova because when that woman is on, she could beat anybody. She has... A huge game. She has a serve that has knocked down more than 100 aces than anybody in the world this year, including Serena Williams. I know she's played more tennis maybe in terms of tournaments than Serena Williams, but she's hit 400-odd aces this year, her, to 260 of Serena. And then nobody else comes anywhere near. She has these piercing, flat ground strokes. And we'll, we'll come on to talk about Chilich later. And, and it's a similar feel to the game that the two players have. And if you think of the way Chilich won the U S open a couple of years ago, beating Federer uh, and, and just smashing him off the court, Pliskova can do that to people. And she did that to Kirby yesterday. I, I'm almost as interested in, in sort of discovering where Pliskova is going to end up that as, as I am about the, the world number one position, because she's, she's just one of those players that you, you, you're waiting to see, what her career will lead to. And, I mean, she's underperformed over the last 12 months because she was, what, seven in the world at one point last year. She looked like she was on course to do something really big. And she's, until today, uh, when she's had, obviously, a rise of winning that tournament, she's gone down to 17 in the world. It's, it's not good enough.
2: No, she's massively underperformed. I remember speaking to her in Doha last year, so it's sort of February, March time, and she was coming in. She'd had this meteoric rise at the time. She was. She had risen to world number 13. She had an opportunity to get inside the world's top 10 that week. And it seemed inevitable. It seemed like if it doesn't happen this week, then it'll happen next week or the week after. And yes, she did break into the top 10, but then backslid in an enormous way and uh, took everyone by, by surprise and sort of has ended up being forgotten about a little bit or, or at least put on the shelf. I saw her... Um, in Nottingham this year and she looked very, very impressive. She did win the title there and, I mean, with her game, of course she absolutely, and with the rest of the fields and all the other top seeds losing early, of course she absolutely should have won the title this year. And when she's winning, you think, well, she should be winning everything with that game, exactly like Maren Chillich. On on her day, she's pretty much unplayable because she just takes the ball out of the opponent's hands. they just basically not in the match. The problem is she's got no plan B and uh, when it malfunctions a little bit, well, it looks like it's malfunctioning quite badly because of the lack of plan B. She's never going to be the greatest mover in tennis. That's not never going to be a strength in her game. But when it does get exposed, it gets very exposed. But Kerber just wasn't able to expose it.
1: Catherine, let's have an early pole vault. I know you want to. Um, it's a Plishkova based one, which is the question, what does the future hold for Karolina Plishkova? Will she end up being world number one and winning a slam? Will she be world number one and never win a slam, like D- denara Safina did and Caroline Wozniacki hasn't done so far? Will she win a slam but never get to number one in the world, which other players have done that too? Or will she... Not do either of those two things, and never win a slam, and never get to number one in the world. Which, which, which do you reckon, Karolina Pliskova?
2: I think it would be a, a bit hasty for me to be predicting just on the basis of of yesterday or of last week. Well, that's that what we do here on the to... podcast. <laughs> I mean, just the mere mention of pole vault, David, is just reminding me how desperately I'm missing the Olympics. So, <laughs> thanks for rubbing salt into that wound. Um, I Yeah, I think it would be a bit rash to suddenly say, oh, she's going to get to number one or she's going to win a Grand Slam. I think she should be, with that game, a pretty solid top 10 player. And certainly with with the merry-go-round that we have seen in the past on the WTA tour, obviously Serena's been dominant, you know, we've discussed the streak that she's on at the top. But, you know, there is potential for her to sneak in at number one at, at some point post-Serena, uh, so which
1: one's she going to do?
2: Well, I'm none of them. <laughs> if you put so me she's, the not, now... she's not
1: going to win a Grand Slam and she's not going to get to number one in the world?
2: No. Well, she might. But if no, I had to say I, I either way now... I don't now... want to hear might.
1: I don't want to hear might. Well, I hear if I yes had no. to say
2: either way now, I would say no.
1: Okay, fine. Well, 55% of people agree with you, Catherine. Uh, 35... Oh,
2: oh.
1: <laughs> 30 I was expecting that. 35% believe that uh, she will win a slam and never get to world number one. 1% think she will do a Dinara Safina and uh, get to world number one but never win a slam. And 9% think she will do both. I would fall into the category of thinking that she will one day win a slam but that she will never get to number one. I think she has the sort of game that can be spectacular.
2: her... People question her desire and her fight, don't they? I think that's potentially a bit harsh, but I can understand why they do it. She doesn't show a whole lot on the court, does she? Or or certainly on the surface. Now, still waters can run very deep, and there may be a lot of fight and passion and heart there that, that we don't see. There probably is, but I can understand why people level that accusation at her perhaps but yeah. you know r- remains to be seen
1: yeah indeed i uh, well we'll leave the the Kerber and serena williams debate until we get the uh the draw which will be coming i think probably next friday won't it um this this coming friday and we'll we'll have our us open preview show uh in association with the telegraph will also be sponsored you,
2: you've announced by... that like like you were doing a movie trailer david oh.
1: Excellent, yes. Brilliant. Uh, Do my voiceover voice. Uh, (laughs) The last time Serena Williams (laughs) played the US Open, she had her heart broken by Roberta Vinci. Oh,
2: God. Is that an accent? Oh, no. Move on. Cut. Cut.
1: Yes, so our preview US Open draw tennis podcast will be brought to you in association with the telegraph and it will be sponsored by racket magazine a print only tennis magazine which uh, we've spoken about in the past and which has been kick-started into being and it will be uh, available very soon in fact i think some of them are being sent out as we speak uh proper coffee table tennis magazine and so uh, anyway that, that that's next week's show so we've got lots to look forward to there we'll talk about kerber and and williams draw and when they might meet well i guess they'll be meeting in the final won't they if they, if they get that far because they'll be numbers one and two seeds another talking point that came out of the Cincinnati draw for me Catherine was Simona Halep because halfway through the tournament I was commentating for BT Sport alongside Sam Smith and we both agreed that the best tennis we were seeing all week was coming from Simona Halep she looked fresh she looked she'd not played the Olympics and and looked as though she was benefiting from that, which, of course, you could say that Plishkova had as well because she didn't play the Olympics either, whereas Kerber reached the final there. And Halep was playing amazing tennis, obviously helped along the way by Darren Cahill, her coach, who I think many believe that is one of the best coaches in the game. And yet, suddenly, Halep ran into a brick wall in the semifinals with, with Kerber. And it wasn't just Kerber playing well, although she did play well. It was Halep just being all over the place. And... Uh, I, I'm sort of uh, the the tennis she'd been playing throughout the week in Cincinnati made me think this woman is going to win the U.S. Open playing like this, and then she threw in a, a dog of a performance like that, and I, I find so it So what can cra- da-
2: I mean? What does Darren Cahill tell her afterwards? I mean that, that that's the thing, isn't it? How does he co- how does he coach her through that?
1: It's re- it's really interesting because he came on for an on court coaching session during that match in the first set, and he delivers by my reckoning the best on court coaching. Um, monologues to a player that anybody else that, better than anybody else uh, and he's clear he's precise, he's simple and and it's, it, it's, it's very inspiring to, to listen to him and yet Sam was saying that they as a team are trying for him not to come onto the court as much because when she gets to the US Open she can't have that and they're trying to make her a little bit more independent but you know, he he couldn't really get anything more out of her, and I I find it I find it surprising really that uh, that she was unable to respond, and I, I hope that she's able to get that together at the U.S. Open because she should be a major factor there. Yeah, by the way she's she I
2: mean she's a mystery. She's she's been a mystery for a couple of years really since losing that French Open final, which yes she lost, but performed brilliantly in it. I think everybody. I think she showed that day, or we we all thought she showed that day, that she is up to the big stage, that she doesn't crumble under pressure because, yes, she ended up losing to Sharapova, But she performed really well in the biggest moment of her career. And everybody thought, it's only a matter of time before she goes on to win Grand Slams. That frankly just hasn't happened. And I believe it hasn't happened for mental reasons rather than anything to do with her game. Donna Cahill, fantastic appointment, regardless of whether she goes on to win Grand Slams. He's undoubtedly doing the right things with her. It's just maybe, maybe she doesn't have that microchip in her that makes you a Grand Slam champion, maybe it's just not there. I'm not writing her off. I still think, really, she should be be winning a Grand Slam or two in her career. But it is just possible that she doesn't have the fibres necessary. You know, some people don't. And that's why we celebrate champions so much. If anybody could do it, just with the right combination of... Coaches and training, etc. I know Matthew Syed would disagree with me, but if anybody's capable of it, then why do we celebrate it so much? You know, maybe she just has a fundamental piece missing. I hope not, and I'm not saying she does, but it is possible.
1: It is possible. It also brought us on to the the, the talking point of on court coaching, and it, and it did occur to me if you could change any match in history by bringing a coach on, do, do any sort of occur to you i mean i asked the question on twitter i got some fascinating responses back john stevenage says the ash the arthur ash against jimmy connor's wimbledon final would be the one for him because connor's just could not cope with with what arthur ash was was throwing in his direction and uh and if he'd have had a coach come on to just sort of relax him a little bit and 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 sort him out it, it might have all been different and history well, could have been changed
2: any any match where there was a huge swing in one one direction any match where somebody comes back from two sets to love down I think I think was this pole vault not prompted by speculation about um had Goran been able to come onto the court during that Chilich Federer match whether. The outcome might have been different and whether they might still be
1: yes it, it was and it was it wasn't actually a pole vault because i didn't actually ask for sort of voting in this one i, I just sort of did a nice open-ended sure. uh, beautiful question right
2: you know? yeah pole vault by a different name 1999
1: french open final when melanie molitor could have come on Um, and and helped Hingis calm down instead of having to just watch herself destruct against Steffi Graf. Good one.
2: Was that... Was that underarm serve day? or Was that was against Capriati, wasn't it? Hingis's underarm. No, no, it was, was underarm
1: that... day, but it was it was against it was Hingis against uh, Steffi Graf. In the it was United it was United. Steffi was with...
2: well, part. yeah. No, that's a good shout. Then that was a good shout, and I'm not sh- <laughs> I'm not sure, her Mum would have advised her to do underarm serving. She came up with that all, all by herself. I mean, yeah, it... I'm
1: definitely having a go at that against you. <laughs>
2: It couldn't be less effective than the overarm. Um, I I mean, I think somebody said on Twitter the 1984 French Open mcenroe lendl But then who can tell John McEnroe anything in the heat of the moment? I'm not sure. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Henman-Ivnizovic, 2001. Maybe David Felgate could have... Could have, I, don't, I mean, but then, you know, what Henman. Were you well, what exactly, could you do? exactly. Henman didn't lose that. Goran took it away. You can't tell him to make Goran play less well.
1: Here's a good one Wimbledon 2009 final. Bring, bring Larry Stefanke on just during the tiebreak of the second set when Roddick. Just before that is, volley. What, six, yeah, Roddick's 6 2 ahead. Let's say that six to ahead in the tire break. Larry Stefanki's is allowed to come on and tell him where to serve, what to do.
2: Tell him, don't miss that volley.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a bit harsh, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, anyway, a few, a few nice memories there. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
2: Be there when it happens with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Subscribe to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code Pod 20 for 20% off your annual subscription.
1: But uh, it's interesting. I was talking to uh, to Sam Smith about On Court Coaching and she was saying that she started off like many of the, the former players do, started off thinking it was a great idea and ended up not wanting it there anymore because of the, the, the way it takes away a player's requirement to think for themselves.
2: Oh, interesting. Cause I, I've, I've gone, I've gone the other way with it. I'm a complete convert. And when it was first proposed. You now like to eavesdrop like me. I, I do. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I sort of agree with her, but nobody, nobody, you know, finds that that detracts from boxing that, that they're able to speak to their coach between rounds and, or oh, you know, that that makes them less good problem solvers and, and, you know, less independent and weak in some way. Nobody says that about boxing. So, and, you know, one per set, it's, <laughs> it's not very much if you're struggling out there. So, I mean, I think the positives outweigh the negatives. I'm completely uncomfortable with the situation we have at the moment where it's, Only in the women's game and only at WTA tour events, not at Grand Slams. I think that's massively unsatisfactory. But in principle, I'm all for on-court coaching.
1: So that's the women's tournament, and uh, a a good one it was too, with some interesting storylines. The men's was equally fascinating, and partly because of the rise of Marin Cilic, and and partly and mostly, in fact, because it just backed up what I was saying in the Davis Cup show the other week uh, that he would win, as you well will back me up on Catherine that I did say that he would win a major a significant title this summer based on the way he was playing didn't I
2: you did yeah I'm spitting the words out but yeah you did I'm I'm quite impressed I'm I'm quite impressed by that David actually not many people were were making that prediction and you were one of them
1: I'm just going to revel in that for a few seconds Okay, I finish reveling. Uh, and he beat uh, he beat Andy Murray in the final. What, what was also impressive, I thought, was the way Andy Murray picked up from from Rio and came out and was just putting people away in straight sets. one Monaco, Kevin Anderson, Milos Raonic, just smashing these guys aside in straight sets, um, straight after such a, a monumental victory. He won tw- twenty two matches in a row, Murray, between the end of the French Open, so he won queens for a fifth time he won wimbledon he came to to rio won the gold and then reached the final of cincinnati i mean yes a, a disappointment i'm sure for him to have lost the final but he i don't think he was absolutely on the top of his game i think he was feeling it fatigue in that final and honestly i do not think he could be in a better place coming into the u.s open now
2: Well, first of all, I think he was way off the top of his game. I don't want this to detract at all from Marin Cilic, and I'll explain Marin Cilic's win, and I'll explain why. I mean, there are massive similarities with what Djokovic did in Toronto, which was haul himself across the line using his competitive instincts, knowing that his game wasn't really there. I mean, Andy Murray's average first serve speed last week, I haven't seen that... Stat, but for me it was at least 15 miles per hour on average, less than usual. He was, I mean, he was busting out a bigger serve on break points. He had it, he had it there in the locker if he needed it. But basically, I mean, he was hitting two-second serves for most of the week. Um, it was almost like a training exercise, you know, problem solving. Well he had that shoulder well, exactly. problem, exactly. as well? Exactly. And I can only assume that his physios were telling him, you know, a week is long enough to rehab it. You're not doing any further damage by going out there and playing, but you're not going to be able to whack your serve every time. And when he, I was commentating for TalkSport on his um, third round match against Kevin Anderson, and they came out on court, and it almost immediately started spitting. Uh, and they were going through this warm-up, and Andy Murray was wincing every time here to serve. I mean, properly grimacing. I mean, in a way that only Andy Murray, well, and me, can grimace. Uh, and clutching at the shoulder every time, looking up at the skies, just not looking remotely up for it in any way. And ended up having to have a sit-down after after the after the warm-up and waiting for the rain to stop anyway and he just felt like well he's he's there for the beating and yet he, he, he hauled himself across the line in that match but Anderson just didn't do well enough nor did Milos Raonic I mean he was there for the beating in the semi-finals I mean Murray did incredibly well scrambled out some great tennis on big points but come on Milos Ranic should have done better in the semifinals and I hope he watched the final, you know, a guy with a very similar game to him that really got it out of the locker when he really needed it and played the right game against a fatigued and and not wounded but just not 100% opponent and what happened in Toronto and what happened in every match that Andy Murray played up until the final is showed just how Difficult it is still to beat these guys, even when they're subpar. Because you've got to believe, you've got to put out of your mind that they're knackered and they're going to be easy to beat. You know, it's not it's not easy, and Marin Cilic deserves a lot of credit for it. I'm not, I really don't want to take anything away because nobody was able to beat Djokovic in Toronto, and it was looking like somehow, despite basically not being able to hit his first serve, Andy Murray was still going to win. That title and, and Marin Cilic just took it out of his hands. I mean, barring a couple of lapses, one when he went to serve out the first set for the first time and he played a horror of a game and a couple of wobbles in the second set. I mean, it was lights out tennis. It was unplayable.
1: Yeah, no, it was. Uh, and it, it was just like he played in the US Open uh, a couple of years ago and he has played like that on and off over the last six weeks or so. I mean, including that, that Wimbledon match against Federer for the first two sets, and and he will hate himself for, for having fallen short there. But if he carries on like this... I mean, there are a couple of people who can beat him. I I think Murray over five sets would find a way, uh, most likely. I think that unless Murray was a bit off and and Cilic just overwhelmed him, and Djokovic's record against him is is 14-0. So, you know, there's no evidence to suggest that Cilic would be able to solve that puzzle. But depending on his draw, he he could well be a semi-finalist at the US Open. I'd be surprised actually, if he doesn't make it to the semi-finals of the US Open.
2: I don't know, but I mean, there was such a steel in his eye that I haven't seen before. I didn't see it at the US Open two years ago. I don't know if it has... Some, I mean, I, I, I noticed it. I was obviously looking out for it in the match he played against Thomas Burdick. I mean, what a match for the draw to throw up. Thomas Burdick, of course, having poached... Well, he's now working with Goran Ivanisevic. what the details are of how that all came about, how... Uh, even isvic and chillich came to split up we we frankly genuinely don't know but there was definitely a steel in his eye in that match chillich uh, and there was a real edge to it and uh, uh, it, it looked like chillich was going to lose it and he did brilliantly and i i thought that was all about goran but then he carried that steel on and he really looks he just looks like he's got something to prove to me whether it's proving he's you know everyone's Counting him out of the conversation because you know that grand slammy one was was a blip, or whether it's you know stop talking about me as a nice guy. You know everyone talks about he's, he's t- too nice to be a great champion. He's sort of I don't know. He's got something to prove, and there's just a grit about him that I've not really seen before.
1: He is nice though, isn't he? <laughs> he is. <laughs> he's, he's lovely, t- isn't but he's he?
2: trying to pretend that he's not. I mean, I, I remember Goran saying it to me when they first started working together. I've got to, I've got to make him less of a nice guy. Nice guys finish last.
1: Well, he, he's now now employed Jonas Bjorkman, who's also a nice fella. But I, I kind of think that that will be quite a clever match as well, you know, because Bjorkman is so larger than life and and likes the attacking game, and I think he will send out Chilich. In a very assertive, aggressive manner. I, I, I think this, this could work.
2: Yeah, I think so too. I really do. I think so long as their personalities mesh and as you say, they're both they're both such nice guys. How could they not? Um yeah, I think it's really interesting. I I, I was surprised when Bjorkman ceased to work with Andy Murray. Obviously Murray's all his coaching decisions seem to be panning out pretty well for him. So I'm not going to question the wisdom of any of them. I just thought that seemed to be something that was working well. And certainly personality wise, they were meshing. And I think bjorn has got a lot to offer to someone on the tour. So I'm glad he's back. And uh, I think this is, yeah, I think it's an, it's yeah. I I raised my eyebrows slightly when it was first announced because it wasn't one that immediately sprung to my mind. It's a bit of a different direction. To Goran, but then when when the idea settled in, I thought, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm, I can get on board with this.
1: Plus, tell me a, tell me a direction that is the same as Goran. I mean, what, what's he <laughs> going to do? Im- employ Marin Safin or Ernest Golbis or something? Um, but uh, anyway, uh, Andy Murray. Just a couple of uh, quick notes on on him as well. Um, the, don't know whether you saw him slightly shank uh, the 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 kick of the ball. Straight Certainly past the did. ear hole of Damien Dumassoir who just gave him the best stare out I've seen in ages.
2: It was fantastic. He, I don't know whether he was buying time to decide what to do. And in the meantime, he, th- he thought, I'll just give him a really disapproving look while I decide whether to give him a warning. And I think ha- had, I mean, the rules in this department are pretty unclear, aren't they? Because, I mean, it's, it's about the it's about the result, not the intent. Had it hit him in the, f- in plum in the forehead, which, which it was whisker, a whisker away from doing, I think Damien Demisoyer would have had no choice, but to default Andy no, Murray. it, it like, would have been
1: over at that point. There's no, there's no question but, about but, it.
2: But the intent would have been, I mean, there was either way, there was no intent in it. So it was just a fluke of luck that it was, A you know, he didn't even get a warning for it, did he? I mean, it's, it's a bit of a quirk do, in the didn't rules. Didn't we have one of those
1: with Djokovic not long ago?
2: Yeah, the French French Open, French Open quarterfinal, semi final certainly business end of the French Open, I think quarter-final. Um, and, the, you know, everyone held their breath for a few seconds, thinking he really, really could be defaulted here. Which, which um, you know,
1: I'm, I have to say, I'm not saying that I think the rules should be changed and they should be allowed to get away with it, but I do kind of think that if if no damage is done and you didn't really mean to do it and clearly neither of those people meant to hurt somebody or throw it at somebody really i kind of think that you know maybe a bit of common sense should be employed at that point personally
2: but is it, well isn't it a bit arbitrary though that you know it, it it's entirely based on luck you know a, rec- a reckless act you know whether the ball just sails past the umpire's ear is you know the act is the same whether the ball accidentally hits the umpire plum <laughs> plum on the forehead or whether it just sails past his ear so you're you're punishing the consequences rather than rather than the act which seems a bit arbitrary to me but... I,
1: i'm saying that the act if if somebody's clearly trying to take somebody's head off and they and they miss <laughs> I, I think they should go at that point.
2: Well, of course. So, so for you, it's about the in- intent.
1: It's about the intent and the the consequences. I think that they can they should both be dealt with depending on the situation. I realise. Well, that as
2: that's... I as I understand it, I believe the situation at the moment is is purely based on consequences and not factoring in intent. Oh,
1: okay, very interesting. I, I mean, look, it's it's all a very inexact science, as I, as I've described I would want it to be I suppose like, for me it comes down to just the feel of the situation I hate the idea that somebody gets chucked out for not hurting somebody and not intending to do it um, that, that seems a bit much to me um, but you know it's 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 open to debate. Uh, Catherine let's get on to happier thoughts and Grigor Dimitrov's massive resurgence to, towards form how how well is he playing under Danny Valverde? he looked like he did two years ago
2: God, the text you've sent me this week about Grigor Dimitrov in in the middle of the night <laughs> um <laughs>
1: God, you make me sound like a right sado <laughs> which is what I am
2: several of them just said he's back i mean you didn't even need to <laughs> need to explain who you were talking about just he's back um and i don't disagree with you that it it looks <laughs> like he's back i'm just you know i developed a new policy a few months ago that I wouldn't get too excited just by seeing a few games of Grigor Dimitrov playing really really well as pleased as I am to see that and he has been playing really really well and he looks more comfortable in himself he's he's you know Danny is doing a lot of cheerleading from the side of the court is definitely a um, a relationship. It's you know, it's not just about forehands and backhands. It's he's 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 getting the reassurances he needs. You know, he's 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 getting the hugs that I feel he needs. Seen, whether he whether, seems whether a, metaphorically or literally, he's a very literally. calming
1: presence, isn't he? It seems to me, Danny Valverde. I, I I don't know him well. I've, I've I've met him a few times. He's always seems like a really nice, charming guy, but really quite down to earth. And and I think that I think that he's. He he seems like quite a good mesh in a way for 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 Dimitrov because I think for a long while Roger Rashid got the very best out of Dimitrov. He he really got him believing in his methods, and he and he was the drill sergeant, and he got him into ex- extraordinary shape. and And in the words of Roger, playing like an elite player, and he, and everything was about uh, trying to to be the best you can be and having to have the same standards at every turn. The problem was at some point. Grigor stopped listening to that and stopped wanting that kind of of um, kick up the backside, which is what I think he was getting on a regular basis. I don't necessarily think he's somebody that you can do that with in the long run. I think it worked for a while, but he, he's a bit of a free spirit sometimes, and I think that, that Valverde is probably just appealing to his personality in a way and and managing to get that kind of structure and good habits into his into his tennis and into his training and into his processes but he's managing to appeal to to his nature really
2: yeah i suspect it's a, a very gentle form of of discipline i suspect the discipline is there and he's not just there to be to be his friend and tell him what he wants to hear but i suspect it is a lot more of a combination of of the discipline, discipline, the drills, the tactics, all the rest of it, and the the arm around the shoulder when he needs it. And I don't think there's any shame in the fact that Dimitrov is a player that that needs that. I, you know, I, I've wanted to run on the court and give him a hug sometimes, and. Uh, yeah, I I think he shows. I would be highly less... amused if you did. <laughs> he shows he showed fewer signs last week of the vulnerability that we've seen in him in him over the summer, which has been difficult to watch sometimes. That vulnerability, you know, losing five first rounds in in a row. What happened in Istanbul? Obviously, I mean, if he'd been able to get a coach on the court in that match, maybe that would have been one that could have been. Oh, so different if Dimitrov could just have spoken to... Well, it would have been Franco Devine at the time, wouldn't it? Um, Yeah, there's definitely something a lot more positive and assured about his demeanour and his tennis is going in the same direction as well. I'm just trying not to get too excited, unlike... unlike you he's he's (laughs) back he's back
1: guilty um just a couple of quick points before we finish uh thomas burdick bad luck to him he has been forced to pull out of the u.s open because of suspected appendicitis we wish him all the best for a healthy uh, recovery and a quick recovery and also Catherine. You know, we get a lot of stick. I get a lot of stick for for my and our, well, certainly your rubbish predict- predictions. But get a load of what our listeners came up with in in uh, asking them who's going to win the finals in Cincinnati. We've got to turn it on, on this lot. I mean, come on. 565 votes for the Andy Murray versus Marin Cilic match. And 94% of them said that Murray would win. And only six percent. Whoever you six percent are, congratulations because you got it right. Chilich won, and in the uh, in the women's final, Kerber against Pliskova. Uh, only eleven percent picked Pliskova to win against Kerber, so eighty nine percent were backing Kerber, and they were all wrong. So, congratulations, tennis podcast listeners. You're just as rubbish as we are.
2: I'm surprised the, um, the Kerber had a greater percentage than uh, chillich for me that was the greatest surprise but there we go I mean all in all mm. pretty rubbish
1: yeah, maybe maybe yeah pretty rubbish so we're we're all rubbish together I'm really pleased that, that we've we've found common ground like this because usually our listeners are are pretty bang on with their predictions compared to us but anyway Catherine Whittaker we you know what how many how many sleeps now until the US Open only about six
2: well, for me, it's uh, it's three because I leave on Thursday. You're you're going to be a bit of a latecomer, but you will you will get there just in time for our hotly anticipated tennis podcast preview show.
1: I, I will indeed, and that will be coming your way next weekend. Thank you for listening to this edition of the tennis podcast, brought to you in association with the Telegraph. We will be there at the U.S. Open in New York to bring you pretty regular tennis podcasts. Not entirely sure how regular we'll make them as regular as we can and we'll we might even try and do a periscope if i can find out what periscope is but anyway that's coming your way thanks for listening we'll speak to you soon
0: ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer